Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Shine, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marshall McLean Agency. And today we have a true cyber celebrity with us, Jennifer Coglin from Mullen Coglin. Jennifer, thank you for joining. Of course. Thanks for having me, Mark. So, Jen, my first question to you is how does a girl who grew up in Pennsylvania end up becoming one of the most well-known cyber uh, authorities in cyber uh, in the United States? Well, thank you. Uh, PA born and raised. I am PA born and raised, and I went to Cabrini College, my undergrad, a double major of history and poli-sci, and then went to Widener for law school. And the ability slash opportunity to start doing cyber really occurred when I met uh, no one other than John Mullen, who, who else, right? So I met John uh, decades ago. And he had not even had his first cyber case yet, but he said, this is really going to take off. I think you'd be really good at doing it. Do you want to, do you want to jump in? Uh, so I jumped in and I think we've gotten to the point where we are because we rolled up our sleeves and did the hard work ourselves. And we were just talking the other day about how we've built what we've built. So we just had our five-year anniversary in October. Uh, so October 1st, 2016, we uh, left a firm and started our own firm, took the data privacy team with us, uh, opened the doors of Mullen Coglin with 13 attorneys, and we are now up to 95 attorneys. And not just 95 bodies, 95 attorneys that are really good at doing data privacy and doing what they do and counseling organizations. And it's because we focused on providing enough resources for education and training so that attorneys hit the ground running quickly and continue to stay current with the laws that are constantly changing and the threat uh, the threat environment that's constantly changing, but also we operate a meritocracy, uh, which is really great when you tell people you're not in competition with your colleagues. We're all rowing in the same direction. Something really amazing happens and it's teamwork. So we have a team of 95 attorneys at this point, we're continuing to grow and we are as successful as we are because of every single person on that team. And we recognize that everybody, not just John and I, equity, every person at Mullen Coghlan recognizes that they are valued and they are part of helping organizations through these really scary events, um, defending them in regulatory investigations and litigation, and also helping them be better before they experience an incident. So, Jen, from my understanding, Mullen Coghlan is actually the largest U.S. privacy-only law firm in, in the United States. Is that correct? I think so. I think so. I don't know of any other uh, firms that do nothing but data privacy with the number of attorneys that we have. I also don't know of any other firms that have a data privacy team with the number of attorneys that we have solely focusing on data privacy. Um, I know if you go on some other firms' websites, you see a whole bunch of people that are listed as doing data privacy, but it might be a secondary area of their practice and they might do other things. Um, so we're really proud to be as big as we are and being focused solely on data privacy. Sure. So, Jen, when we're looking in the rearview mirror, um, what do you see when it comes to incidents and vulnerabilities in your experience? Yeah, so it's been a wild ride uh, since we opened the doors and even before we opened the doors, but the volume and severity, it continues to increase. And I'm going to turn and not look at the camera, but look at some numbers that I have uh, that we can share with everybody. 
Um, so again, we track data on our matters pretty closely. We understand how valuable that data is and how if we get that data out there, people are going to be better. They will be educated on how things have gone wrong and maybe be able to put themselves in a position to not fall victim the way that other organizations have. Um, so in 2019, for this is, this is just incident response matters, uh, we had 2,350 matters. In 2020, we had 3,551. And in 2021, we had 3,954. That doesn't include the regulatory defense, that doesn't include litigation defense, doesn't include compliance. Um, but what we've seen, even though the volume continues to increase is that the attacks du jour, they're not changing. The top three have been what they've been for a few years. It's okay. ransomware, it's business email compromise, it's third party events. Uh, so we continue to see those being the top three types of attacks or events that we see organizations um, experiencing and coming to us for counsel. Um, in 2019, just to break it down a little more, knowing those are the top three matters, in 2019 of the 2,350 matters that we had, 681 were ransomware matters, 540 were business email compromised, and 423 were third-party events. In 2020, of the 3,551 matters we had, 1,024 of them were ransomware, 805 were BECs, and 654 were third-party events. And in 2021, we had 3,954 IR matters. Uh, 1,121 were ransomware, 976 were BEC, and 594 were third-party events. Um, but tracking more, since ransomware is number one, ransomware is what all organizations are scared of and a lot of organizations are falling victim to. Um, so in 2020, we uh, saw the average demand being $3.8 million the average payment being 580,000, the median payment being 154,000. But we saw organizations paying only 25% of the time. And I don't have the stats from 2019, but I think that's a fantastic trend. Only a quarter of the time, you have an organization that will be making a payment to, to a threat actor. Yeah. And, and the, the reasons, you, yeah, go ahead. You, what do you test that to? What is, how is that, why is that number so low? Yeah, so uh, it's, it's, it's helpful to understand why they paid. We track the reason for payment because it's going to then show you why organizations were able to not pay. Um, so 60% of the time when payment was made in 2020, it was because the victim organization didn't have backups because they were encrypted or they were deleted by the threat actor, or they had backups, but obtaining the key would be quicker for restoration purposes. And then 26% of the time that payment was made, it was for key and delete only. So we've seen ransomware really evolve over the past few years, and it's evolved to a point where threat actors realize if they exfiltrate data, they will be able to put more pressure on the organization to pay because one, the organization needs access to their data, but two, they don't want to experience additional reputational harm or damage, potential reputational harm or damage if their data is leaked out on the dark web. Um, so 26% of the time, we had organizations that didn't have backups, or they did, and it would take too long to restore from the backups, but they also were paying for data suppression, which is a promise from a criminal. So uh, the value is what they're willing to pay. We can't guarantee they are not circulating the data, sharing the data, going to post it later. 5% um, of the time, organizations paid. They had backups. They restored from backups, but data had been exfiltrated, and they felt it was the appropriate business decision to pay 
who are promised of data suppression and deletion and the threat actor saying, okay, you paid us so we're not going to release the data out on the dark web. So 75% of the time we saw organizations saying, we have backups or we have alternative sources of the data that we can go to and utilize to recreate the data on our systems. And we've seen plenty of organizations within that 75%, they had data taken and just because data is taken and you pay for a promise of deletion from the threat actor doesn't mean if there's protected data in that exfiltrated data, you get to absolve yourself of having to notify under the laws that apply to you. You still have to notify, even though you're getting a promise from a threat actor, it's never going to be enough for a regulator when they find out you didn't do notice. So 75% of the time they have backups, they have other sources of data. We've had organizations say, you know what, we don't have backups, we don't have alternative sources, we're going to live without it. We're just going to move on. We're going to struggle. We're going to limp. It's going to hurt, but we're not going to pay that. And we've seen organizations also say they took our data. We're not going to pay them for a promise that we can't guarantee it's not going to go out there. We don't trust them. And we've seen organizations have their data posted. Some of the threat actors, they host blogs where they put this data. Other times they'll put it out for sale. Um, we've seen organizations say, you know, we're calling your bluff. We're not going to pay you. And they, the data goes up on the dark web and the organization still needs to disclose and the organization is able to continue on. Um, so 75% of the time we saw organizations not pay and for those reasons, but we actually saw the numbers get even better in 2021, which I think is fantastic. And I have a few theories why, um, but in 2021 payment, the average demand was $2.1 million. So we saw the demand go down. The average payment was 524, so we, 524,000. So we saw that average go down. The median payment was 226,000. So that's an increase from the median payment the year prior. But payment was only made 18% of the time. So we uh, were dropping down the number of organizations that are making payments and the amount of payments that are being made, it's less. Um, the reason for payment in 2021, 42% of the time, they just needed the key, either because they didn't have backups or it would take too long. 42% um, it was key and delete, so they needed the key and there was data, so they wanted the promise of suppression. And then 16% of the time it was delete only, so they could restore or regain access to their data in some way, shape or form, but data was taken and they felt it was the appropriate business decision to pay so that the threat actor wouldn't disseminate the data out there. Sure. sure. So, so Jen, I mean, it sounds like you have uh, the threats uh, broken down. Is there any industry by chance that you saw a greater uh, 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 likelihood of getting attacked? Yeah, so we, uh, we the short answer is yes, um, based upon the matters that we have, but every industry is being hit. So we have some industries being hit more than others, um, but for our matters, we break them into 10 different categories. So what I'm going to do is go back 2020 and 2021. This is heavy on the numbers, but it's really helpful information. So I'm going to take the time to go through it. Uh, so in 2020, 32% of our matters were for financial and professional services organizations. 25% of those matters, ransomware, Three, 382 of those matters were BEC and 87 were third-party events. Um, the number two type of uh, industry hit for our matters for 2020, manufacturing and distribution. And I don't mean to chuckle and smile when I say that, but I know you remember the time just a few years ago where they would say, we make widgets. Why on earth do we need cyber? Because you make widgets. And if you can't make widgets, you're gonna lose a lot of money. 
So number two, um, for us in 2020 was manufacturing and distribution. 14% of our matters, or 491 matters, were for manufacturing and distribution organizations. 46% were ransomware, 24% were BEC, and 6% were third-party events. And healthcare and life sciences came in at number three with 12% of our matters, or 438 matters. 25% being ransomware, 18% being BEC, 20% being third-party events. Uh, number four, education, 11% or 390 matters in 2020. 17% were ransomware, 10% were BECs, and 51% were third-party events. And you'll remember in 2020, we had BlackBot that was announced in July of 26, or 2020, a big ransomware matter. Um, and BlackBot served as a data collector for a lot of different organizations. Um, so just taking a step back and explaining what a data collector is, and that's where the third party event comes in. A data collector is an organization um, that collects data and houses data on behalf of another organization, doesn't own the data. But it could also be something like a, a system or a software that supports a whole lot of organizations. So they may have access to your data, but they don't own your data. So when they experience an incident under contract, the disclosure obligations may have been shifted to the data collector as opposed to the data owner. But under the law, the data owner is the one that needs to make sure all the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed, all the laws are being followed. And BlackBod, we had 476 BlackBod matters come in in 2020. A lot of them were for education institutions and a lot of them were for the next uh, industry sector I'm gonna talk about nonprofit. Uh, so we had 286 matters or 8% of our matters in 2020 were for nonprofit organizations. 11% were ransomware, 16% were BECs, 55% were third-party events. Number six, we have hospitality and entertainment coming in at 8% or 285 matters for 2020. 30% were ransomware, 19% were BECs, 16% were third-party events. Number seven, technology. 8% or 276 of our matters in 2020, 44% ransomware, 14% BEC, 7% third-party events. Uh, number eight, government, 6% or 204 matters, 39% ransomware, 14% BECs, 12% third-party events. Energy coming in at number nine with 49 matters, 49% uh, being ransomware, 27 being BEC, 6% being third-party debt, and number 10 being other. And that, those were uh, 16 matters that we had in 2020. So looking at last year, 2021, financial and professional services remains number one, 39% uh, or 1,559 of our matters, 26% ransomware, 29% BEC, and 232 of those 1,539 matters were third-party events. Uh, manufacturing and distribution is still number two. So 16% or 613 of our matters, 39% being ransomware, 25% being BECs, 13% being third-party events. Healthcare and life sciences, 13% or 515 matters, 21% uh, ransomware, 16% BEC, 21 third-party events. Uh, coming in at number four, technology, 9% or 343 of our matters, 37% being ransomware, 16% being BECs, 8% being third-party events. Number five, hospitality and entertainment, 6% or 255 of our matters, 32% being ransomware, 23% being BECs, 10% being third-party events. Number six, education, 5% or 211 of our matters, 24% ransomware, 23% BEC, 12% third-party events. 
Uh, number seven, government, 5% or 208 matters, 22% ransomware, 19% BEC, 28% third-party event. Number eight, nonprofit, 5% or 184 matters, 23% uh, ransomware, 35% BEC, 13% third-party events. Number nine, energy, 81 matters or 2%, 28 28% being ransomware, 31% being BECs, 14% being third-party event, and other, we have five matters for other industry sectors. Um, so the ranking, you're seeing professional financial services being hit frequently, healthcare and life sciences, they're always going to be up there. Um, but manufacturing and distribution has held strong at number two for the past two years. And I think that that demonstrates a real recognition by the threat actors. You know, it's, it's shifted from a few years ago, they were after all the protected data, they would wanna sell it on the dark web, they would wanna take credit cards out, and loans and things like that. They realized a few years ago, we can monetize our efforts much better if we just shut organizations down. And when you shut down manufacturing and distribution, they're going to be hurting immediately and for a very long period of time until they're operational again. So we saw real recognition by the threat actors over the past few years that manufacturing and distribution, they're great targets for cybercrime. They're going after them and they're, they're being successful, as you can see. All things being equal, one would think a manufacturer probably doesn't have some of the safe safeguards as some of the healthcare, financial institutions, things like that. Is that a safe assumption to make? I don't know. I don't know if it's a safe assumption to make because they may have safeguards on some of their systems, but because so much is computerized at this point in time and connected, if the safeguards don't carry over from the desktop and the machine that's actually imprinting metal, then they may have some of the safeguards, but they may not be consistently deployed across the organization. Um, and we've seen some healthcare organizations that have been highly regulated for a while, required to have certain safeguards in place under HIPAA, um, not always being able to check those boxes and sometimes not even being aware that they had boxes to check. So we oftentimes see in our healthcare matters, as we're going through the event and we're understanding what happened, what happened and we know we need to report to health and human services, we're also working with them to understand privacy rule, security rule, where are you falling, breach notification rule, where are you falling in compliance? Because they're going to ask about that in the regulatory investigation. So we see a lot of compliance work being born from our healthcare and life science matters so that they can become in compliance with HIPAA. So, so Jen, um, you, you've shared a tremendous amount of information with us on part one of today's podcast. We look forward to having you back for part two, um, where we're gonna be discussing more of the regulatory pieces within cyber risk. Sounds great. Thank you.